This is Dr. Andrea, and welcome to another episode of Boom Talk Media. Today, we have a little something special to share with you. I recently had the pleasure of speaking to the membership of the Transition Network, a national organization serving women 50 forward, about how to thrive as we emerge and shift into new realities. Please enjoy this recording and feel free to reach out to us info at Boom Talk Media with any questions, comments, or reactions you might have. Thanks for listening. It is my great honor to introduce Dr. Andrea Goldmarks. Andrea is a native New Yorker who now lives in the hot place we were just talking about in Arizona. She's a psychologist and a coach, and she has decades of experience working in both public and private practice. She's written books and she's a consultant. And she's also, I think this is so cool, she's founder of a, a thing, a, a company called Boom Talk Media. And Boom Talk Media, it's boot for boomers, um, creates what they call socially conscious, heartfelt, and relevant ebooks, podcasts, blogs, webinars, and all of that aims to help people who are listening and reading to get optimum well being. And, you know, focusing both on them as individuals and then them in the bigger world with other people. So that's Andrea, and we're going to hear a lot from. From her. I'm also very, there's Andrea. <laughs> I'm also very excited to have Rinda Menon with us tonight. Rinda is um, going to moderate the conversation and we know her very well because she's a member of the TTN board of directors and has a day job, a giant day job as chief technology officer for JP Morgan private bank. I know she just um, had a town hall today for 800 of her employees. And uh, she said it went pretty well. Nobody threw rotten tomatoes or um, so they, they liked her ideas. Um, before she was at um, JP Morgan, she was managing director at Goldman Sachs. So she has a gilt edged resume. And in 2021, which was the year she joined our board, Vendor was named Woman of the Year by Waters Technology. Some of you know that in the financial services industry, Waters Technology is the thing that gives out the biggest and most important awards for technology and data. So that's Brenda. So I'm with that, that's my introduction. I am going to just hand the program over to Andrea and Brenda for the next uh, 30 minutes. Thank you for that introduction. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Andrea, uh, it's great to have you here. I've gotten to know you since yesterday when we first spoke. And I'm super happy because uh, I myself have a lot of takeaways and I'm sure the group is gonna have a lot of things to take away. So let's start with having seen the word cloud, Andrea, do you wanna start us off with any practice at this time? I, I do, but I wanna make one comment first and I wanna say we're all in the same boat. And while every journey, each one of us has a unique journey, we're all journeying over common ground right now, big common ground. So that's my first thought feeling. Secondly, what I'd like to do is I would like to start with something that's gonna ground us all. It's only gonna take a minute. 
I did the math. It's a breathing exercise. What we're going to do is we're going to breathe, inhale for four seconds. We're going to hold for four seconds. And then we're going to exhale for four seconds. And we're going to do that for a minute. So do the math. It's not going to be very long. It's going to seem much longer, but it's only a minute. Okay. So are we ready, Brenda? Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll do the counting. Inhale, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, exhale, two, three, four. Inhale, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, exhale, two, three, four. Inhale, two, three, four, hold, out, two, three, four, in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, one more time, two, three, four, hold, and exhale, two, three, four. And just come back to presence. There'll be many grounding opportunities that it sounds like you'll be having this year with all of your speakers, but it's always good to come into presence at the very beginning, and there's no better way than breathing. So that's takeaway number one. Thank you. No, well, I feel I feel better already, and I've forgotten my questions. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so the past few years have been really hard for a lot of people around the world, whether it's sadness due to personal loss, whether it's being confined at home, um, not having the opportunity to interact with family and friends, things like that. Um, as a practicing psychologist, Andrea, what is your observation of uh, your patients? Is it a pattern that's common? What are you seeing? Is there anything you want to share with us here? Oh boy! So it's it's morphed a lot over the over the two years for sure, but in general, the words on the word cloud really speak it loud as anything. So thank you for doing the word cloud because the variety of feelings and the maybe seemingly contradictory nature of some of those feelings are what we've all been holding. It's a giant paradox. Because <coughs> on the one hand, there are positives, and on the other hand, at the same time, there's all this anxiety. Anxiety, of course, doesn't surprise me that it comes in the center of the entire map, because aside from grief and sadness, it is the mother of all emotions and really all behavior, a great determiner of all behavior. So we can all recognize that, like I said before, we may be journeying over common ground, but we're unique. And we all have a different way of having that anxiety express itself in our lives. So yeah, that's been the great leveler. Has been do, you see, do you see any difference between different age groups or is it a common pattern across the board? 
the anxiety is a common factor across the board. It, its expression is different in different age groups. The age group on the, you know, if we call it the second half of life is far more, has been far more equipped to handle almost everything that happens with equanimity. We're set up for it, you know, with our experience. Got it. And so you're saying um, in this example that women over a certain age are able to adapt more easily because of what they've seen and experienced? For the most part, there have been some real difficulties in women who find themselves, who have found themselves, find themselves suddenly alone, unexpectedly alone, having been widowed, having gone through, begun to go through a divorce before the pandemic, then in the divorce during the pandemic, the empty nest, which for women in their 50s is really one of those things where the kids moved out and then moved back in. So even though it felt like a, a long time of stress and anxiety, it was it's more like ocean waves. You know, they're, they're real tall waves and then there were shorter ripples, but it never stopped moving and it still hasn't stopped moving. So it demands a lot of adjustment. Understood. So if you had patients, I'm sure you have patients who've come to you with those kind of issues and, and experiences, um, can you give us a couple of tips of what you told them and how you helped them navigate those kind of situations? I want to talk about loneliness for a minute because there's loneliness as one of the major factors for a subset of women, right? Mm-hmm. There are many women who didn't feel they felt they had their parents living with them, they had their children living with them, and that was lonely wasn't their word, mm-hmm. right? They had other words like stressed, but. In terms of the loneliness, and I can think of, um, there's one woman that comes to mind um, that was really frustrated at living alone. She was a newly widowed woman. She didn't plan to live alone. She was coping with being a widow by adventuring out every single day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, keeping herself with company the whole time. And so the direction that the therapy took with Sarah Um, was more of the distinction between appreciating solitude as opposed to feeling lonely. Mm -hmm. And part of where our conversations brought her was to develop, and this was the first time in her life that she did this, she was 67 years old, to develop a spiritual practice. And um, And her spirituality was Christianity. So she developed a practice of contemplation and it really moved the needle on her loneliness and, uh, and, and kind of brought her in contact with a whole set of mystical practices that she threw herself into and has resulted in, in a whole new woman. That's one example. Here's another woman who um, was living alone, had been alone, uh, had been single by choice, no children. She had a lot of self-hatred. She had a lot of criticism of herself. Anything she did wasn't what she thinks she should should have done. So it was really getting to the point where she was almost like eating herself up alive. And so the direction that our consultations took was getting her out of herself. And she wound up, of course, volunteering with puppies. 
She fostered some puppies. She wound up volunteering in, in Manhattan in a local place on the um, east side. And, you know, the self-criticism took a big backseat to the fulfillment. So that's that's just two. I mean, I could go on, but one, one other really good one. Bella had been a teacher and she had, uh, she was a music teacher, I believe. And she really didn't know what to do with herself either. She was a married woman in her early seventies. She wound up contacting people through her church in the community and wound up helping parents who were trying to educate their children at home by themselves and work remotely. And so she felt like she had a whole new role. Hmm. That's an example. Yeah. I mean, that, that sounds great. Lots of takeaways and lots of thoughts of, you know, different ways of attacking this loneliness and getting to a better place. Um, so the world has changed now. People are starting to get back. And, um, you know, now there's a whole set of new things. It's not anymore people sitting in a corner in their little rooms and their Zoom calls. And now you're facing the world and you're starting to meet people. And now there's a different kind of anxiety. How, how do I look? How do I dress? How can I wear heels when I've not worn it for two years and my feet are hurting? Um, things like that that are now hitting people. Uh, what do you say to that? Like, what, what kind of advice do you have for women who are feeling all of that, feeling like they're not put together like they were before, or they've made adjustments, which may not exactly be, uh, you know, appropriate. They're not sure whether it's okay or not. So tell me more about that. We did, we did get used to the great comfort of dressing <laughs> comfortably. And I have for a long time been a proponent of dressing comfortably because a lot of the younger women that I worked with when I was a younger psychologist were driving themselves crazy in terms of fitting into their jeans or fitting into their shoes. So I am um, not a stranger to comfortable clothing, but this was, this was the ultimate. And I think that there's been a lot of carryover that even though the, it was no longer necessary to stay in comfortable clothing, I think women really kind of um, decided that that was going to be the new normal. Many women who had gray hair let their hair grow out. There was a um, less is more kind of thing that was going on. Um, and I think that it's a great, I think it's a great growth for people to be accepted because nobody is alone in that. If anybody was feeling any of those things, they were not alone. The other um, in the emergence outward is the overload, what mm. we call the cognitive overload, that all of a sudden we went from being able to um, regulate what, what we were going to hear, what we were going to see, et cetera. All of a sudden now it's like going to the supermarket became overwhelming. And I remember the first time that I um, left the house after the quarantine, um, driving, oh my, you know, cars going really fast. I mean, it was, it took, it took my breath away to notice how fast the world had begun to move. So I, you know, the recommendation is definitely <clears throat> to be moving out in smaller and gradual gradually larger circles, both socially as well as stimulation-wise, we realized we didn't need as much stimulation as we thought we did, which is a whole other story about how we've evolved as a species. Yeah, I mean, to your point of cognitive overload, um, I happened to take a trip to India this March. The sound, the noise, the people, the planes, the uh, airports, 
all of that and then meeting hundreds of people in town halls, I can tell you at the end of every day, I felt drained and tired. And, um, you know, the cognitive overload where we could control it before and now you can't is really uh, difficult. But I think what you're saying is super important, which is it's no different for anybody. Everybody is feeling that somebody who's uncertain, driving and afraid or entering a meeting or entering a networking session. We all going to feel differently. And you're saying that it's the same for everybody, right? Because everybody is in the same world. Yeah, and it's just interesting, the adaptation process, or you want to call it physiologically, the accommodation process, the way when you walk into a darkened theater, it looks really dark at first, and then, you know, all of a sudden you can see people, right? Just in a matter of seconds, really. Um, We think it's going to take longer to adjust, and yet our muscle memory, if you will, of being sociable, even though it might feel awkward at the beginning, begins to take over. And just not not too long ago, my partner, Barbara, who you met before, um, and I, uh, for the first time in a long time, went to one of our women's network meetings. It was outside. It was about 22 women were there. And at first it was like deer in the headlights. And then it became this hugging fest. And, you know, people were almost giddy with the joy of being in contact and feeling safe at the same time, which has become an art, I think, as each individual navigates her own family, friendship circles, et cetera. It's an art, balancing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And again, underscoring that everybody feels the same way, right? It's very rare that somebody is feeling different about this and feeling- Well, it was a great equalizer, wasn't it? I mean, the trauma of it became the great equalizer. Um, some of the um, mystics in psychology were calling it the sacred pause. Mm. The sacred pause. And it, it was really on a, lot of, on a lot of levels, it was a gift to stop. It's just like it was a gift to the planet in terms of climate, where all of a sudden the smog was like, wow, what a concept. No cars, no smog. You know, that kind of thing. So there's a lot to think about in terms of what we learned. Yeah. And still learning. And so just going going to that point about the pause, the big pause, um, you talk about patient awareness and um, you did talk about pausing and becoming more aware. Can you share that concept? Because I think it's super interesting and something that I'm going to practice. Listen, I'm on a Zoom right now. I'll call you when it's over. Okay, I'm just doing it. I'll call you in. Okay, bye. bye. (laughs) That's so cute. Okay. Um, What we want to say about that, the sacred pause, is that, um, what was the question you asked me again? Patient awareness. Oh, the patient awareness, right? Yeah. Okay. So patient awareness. So one of the biggest problems that that I face as a psychologist is, is habit change. And habits are responsible for a tremendous amount of behavior, even just reactive behavior, just automatic behavior. And automatic behavior is kind of a killer to growth because if, if we do everything automatically, then we're not necessarily evolving. So it comes, it emerges out of mindfulness. Um, and it's something that I felt very strongly that Um, during the pandemic, there was a lot of impatience going on. So the antidote to impatience was patience. And and so being patient requires one to 
be aware that they're being impatient, that we are being impatient. And I was very impatient. I have really grown up a lot by studying my own concept of patient awareness, because I had to ask myself, is it necessary to be rushing so much? Stop. And, and it was actually a command, stop. And then from there, as soon as you stop, options open up where you didn't think you had options before because you were on automatic pilot. So if we wanna change anything in our lives, literally anything from relationship dynamics to eating behavior, to self-care behaviors, we have to stop what we're doing first. And then we have to patiently begin to see what the choices are and adopt them slowly, like baby steps. And that's what the sacred pause really I mean, I came to it during that time, though I'd studied mindfulness for many years, this was a way. And we've got, we've got a little trick. I, um, I'd like, I have time to talk about the Thich Nhat Hanh's phone meditation. Talk about it. I think that's interesting. Okay, this is an adorable um, intervention, self-intervention to, to be able to do, to kind of get the gist of what happens when you assume the mindset of patient awareness. Okay, the phone rings, what do we do? We automatically grab the phone and we see who it is and we're reacting and answering and doing everything at the same time. Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a Vietnamese monk and very well quoted, um, and it's so cute when he comes up with something that's you know so modern technology, he says, okay, so this is what you do. You let your phone ring and you just observe the ring. You listen to the ring. You watch yourself listening to the ring. And then you look at the caller ID and you see how you feel. You scan your body to you see how you're reacting to the person who called. And then you go on with that, those little atomic adjustments, but now you're present in the conversation, really present because you've begun that process of presence. And our phones ring all the time. So it really hits at that. The more we repeat a, a process like that, the more that becomes the habit rather than just being reflexive and, and jumping. And that happens too, like with parenting or a woman I was speaking to earlier today, she always gets annoyed with her mother when her mother gives her advice about something. This is a 50 year old woman who with a 75 year old mom. And she immediately gets angry even before she hears what her mom's saying, right? So it works for being, um, for being, for modifying relationship dynamics as well. Got it. So if her mother called and the phone rang, what would, what is the new thing she would do? Well, first she'd wait. I mean, you know, she, of course, like most kids, even though she's a 53 year old kid, you know, a lot of people don't answer the phone when their mother is calling. Uh, um, I, for, I could, uh, don't <laughs> become that, but continue. Right. right? Sometimes they don't. Otherwise they do. And they're already reactive we're already reactive. So it just gives people an opportunity to see themselves because they're not in what we call automaticity. We're not in automatic behavior. We have time to pause. And so patient awareness gives ourselves time to pause. We're so much more resourceful 
when we stop first. And I think you said something, Andrea, yesterday about, about something like this, which is, look, I'm angry with this person. I write it down and then it changes my, I can change my perspective and turn it positive. I think our, our women here would love to hear that too. Yeah, yeah. It comes from, um, it comes from something I wrote once that said, how we perceive is how we proceed. So if we're, let's just say we're angry with a coworker or we're angry with, angry with your mom, let's continue with that example. Okay, okay. All right, we'll continue with that example. So we're angry with, with, with a mom. And it's, you know, one of the, the, now this is a personal growth technique. This is not something that you would necessarily do right there. And then unless you had it in your mind that the next opportunity you were going to use this takeaway, right? Mm -hmm. But what you do is you write a couple of sentences about your feelings. You know, my mom's so annoying. She always does this. She always does that. And then you review it and you see, is it always? Maybe we want to cross out always. Maybe sometimes she does it. Mm -hmm. or she's always dictating to me. So then we cross out dictating and, and we can change the word to making suggestions. And, and we can see right there and then with our choice of language. And I derive this from being a lifelong journal keeper. One doesn't need to keep a journal in order to do this. One could take a scrap of paper. Writing it is really the better idea than typing it. But look at the, uh, the whole panoply of emotions that can change when you write something down and then consider, is that true? Or is there another way? Is there another way to perceive this? And then what does that do to the relationship? Or how much more resourceful can you be or less aggravated? All yeah. of those good things. Yeah, it actually reminds me of something written in the Holy Indian books, which is, I'm angry with you and I want to take revenge or, you know, attack you in some way or the other. Essentially, what I'm doing is holding a burning coal in my hand. And who's getting burnt? It's me. Yes. In that yeah. process, because I'm holding all this hurt and anger and, you know, I'm so upset. I'm actually impacting myself, That's not right. the person, right? Yeah. So it sounds right. And it, it, it holds for forgiveness as well. I'm carrying all this, all this hurt that somebody did for a long time ago. And yet it, they don't know. It's hurting me, not them. So yeah, that's a great one from the Holy Book. That's probably where we got a lot of things from. Um, so there's a famous quote by Albert Einstein that goes, in the midst of every crisis lies opportunity. I mean, COVID was hard. Um, as you said, we've learned a lot. It's shown us uh, people that are strong and resilient and the experiences of life that have got us all to a better place. Um, what are the other opportunities that COVID has provided in your opinion? Um, you know, well, let's like, if we stick with the set, you know, people in the second half of life, Jung was uh, famous for saying that when we get to the second half of life, whatever we perceive that to be, whether it's 45 or 50 or 60, uh, these days it could be 60, <laughs> that um, what we didn't do in the first half or a way that we weren't in the first half, we tend to gravitate to in the second half. One example is people who were very 
introverted in their first half of life might discover satisfaction in being more extroverted. People who were very left-brained in the first part of life can start appreciating, you know, maybe I maybe I'll paint, maybe I'll do watercolor, maybe I'll garden. So there is um, in the lifespan, a great balancing out that can happen. Um, it certainly does. Another- and COVID triggered that in some way, um, like COVID, you know, did it make a difference in those? Uh, I think so. I think it accelerated those realizations. It mm. accelerated those ideas. Um, you know, as people began to write and, and create articles, you know, some of these ideas got dispersed into the general population. Um, a lot of people developed bubbles, and so they decided to share their ideas. Mm -hmm. They became the whole concept of the friendship happy hour, where, you know, at whatever time, you know, people would get their glass of wine and just relate about where they'd been. That was one of the lifesavers. Friendship was a lifesaver. Even just social contact and connection was a lifesaver. You know, the same way as volunteering in ways that people could, like the woman I told you about who volunteered in the, um, in the, in the shelter with puppies, life changing. So those are among the things because now all of a sudden we have time to do that. At first there was a whole wave of people um, cleaning out their closets. Mm. very funny it was like everybody was like oh yeah I cleaned out a drawer today oh oh yeah I, I cleaned out my closet because we don't have time for that and then for older women I found like women 60 and older there became a whole renaissance of reading like reading books like book after book after book because reading is something that we've done in our childhood that was satisfying it was before all the technology and it was so peaceful so people reconnected with what they did that was satisfying to them. And then of course, reconnecting with other people. And a lot of surprising, you know, people from your past. And, you know, like I say, you know, it was like your maid of honor, I hadn't heard from you for 20 years, you know. I think it's easier now for the reconnection for people who follow Facebook. But for those who didn't, they have friends who did. And say, oh, I saw Marianne on Facebook the other day, and she would love to hear from you. And so there was a lot of coming together in unexpected, <clears throat> heartwarming, and surprising ways. So um, on that point, let's say I'm I'm a lonely woman, and I'm sitting alone at home, uh, you know, feeling sad that I don't have connections. You talked about a solar system kind of idea and how to start establishing one connection at a time. Can you just elaborate on that? Yeah, a it's, it's one of the things that I do recommend. And, and for any age person, I do. I say, picture yourself at the center of a solar system. There are people that you see like Mercury and Venus, you know, planets that rotate around you every day or even the moon rotate, you know, you see it every day. And then there are ever growing, ever, ever widening orbits of other people. One of the things that became very popular is popular in an unpopular kind of way. It's like, I used to see people at the gym, or I used to see people, you know, at my bus stop or on the Long Island Railroad, you know, I used to see people. And that created like a real sense of absence and so reconnecting with people, even one connection at a time, even if it's somebody like a woman recently that I met, 
had moved here um, and didn't know anybody and during the pandemic. That was a very rough kind of thing to happen for people. Many people were in the midst of relocating. And so one woman very creatively decided that she had no friends yet. She went to the stores that were open and she made friends with whoever was in the store, whether it was the cashier in the store or whether the, um, you know, the, the, Ace Hardware was very popular because they're so nice in Ace Hardware. They're very, you have them in New York, don't you? Yes. Yeah, yeah we have one on every corner here. Um, and so that was another place that she found really helpful that just quenched her need for human contact. And then yeah, of course- Trader Joe's is another place. You see all these positive- Ah, yes, Trader Joe's. <laughs> and Trader Joe's was very conscientious. So it became a place that felt- relatively safe because there was always, you know, and that's another thing we can talk about, weighing the risk factor, which is really up in Technicolor now, but definitely connection is the single most important, beside breathing, <laughs> the single most important factor in feeling well-being. Got it. I think we've reached close to 30 minutes and wow. uh, I, yeah, I mean, thank you. It was so interesting and so engaging to talk to you. Um, can you, um, you know, as a takeaway, tell us three things that you believe are the most important things that have worked for you um, in getting to a better place, especially when we think about anxiousness, loneliness, sadness, anger, frustration, all the stuff that people are going through right now as we come out of this once in a lifetime kind of event. There's a quote that I wanna read first because it was so, I think it's so touching and relevant. And then I'll, I'll try to narrow down. We do have, um, I made a whole long list of takeaways and everybody one at one moment after this will get a list of the takeaways and then there'll be three. But I found this quotation and I just loved it. And um, it's about when you feel out of sorts or disconnected from your sense of well-being. And this is from Sylvia Townsend Warner, who happened to be an English novelist like in 1893. She lived into the 20th century. She said, for myself, when I feel this way, well, for myself, I found one remedy and that is to undertake something difficult, something new to reroute myself in my own true faculties to reroute myself in my own true faculties. So it's a matter, you know, when we feel disillusioned, we've lost contact with ourself. And sometimes only through effort, doing something hard, that we really rediscover our strengths. So that would be one of the takeaways that I would say, you know, throwing yourself into something that you haven't ever done before, learning a language. I mean, just all it's amazing. I think that's pretty deep. I need to think through that for myself, for sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll send around a little publisher, but that's, that's really, um, I think, very absorbing. Learning, by the way, just learning anything, okay? And in, in this case, we can interpret that meaning as, as learning something new that you mm -hmm. didn't know before. It's and like, so you get distracted and you're focused on something else and you enjoy the challenge and the excitement of, and the fulfillment of doing something. And it converges you because worrying and anxiety is much more abstract. Mm -hmm. So when you can pull it together and focus, 
the other good thing is that when it involves learning, it involves the endorphins. Mm. Every and like that's the falling in love, those hormones, oxytocin. Um, and not oxycontin, oxytocin. <laughs> it's the, you know, the, the, the love hormone. And it's present in learning as well. So that's one takeaway. The mm-hmm. breathing practice, like we talked about, and be creative with it. If four is too much to hold, I know you have a breathing practice that you that you talked about in yoga that is a different, there's a myriad breathing practices, but it's essential. Um, I do that, by the way, um, before getting into a town hall with 800 people, I do breathing and then go in and then it becomes easier. <laughs> so it works for me for sure. Yes, yes. It, it works. I mean, it's one of the things that that works. Um, so if I had to pick three, I would pick the breathing practice. Um, I would pick also, um, aside from the expanding your connections to the solo system, I call it the solo system, but it's your personal solar system, is trying on different mindsets. You know, mm-hmm. having a focused mindset is very, very different than walking around the house, cleaning everything up and putting everything in, just different. So trying on a, um, a friendly mindset, going outside and just having a warm smile on your face and smiling at the people who are walking their dogs and talking to the dogs. That's a friendly mindset. There's myriad mindsets as well, but that's a good concept because a mindset pulls together a whole lots of feelings and behaviors in one small mindset, like wearing a hat and helping others. Whether it's too then, long and then you said you have a longer list of takeaways that people could use practical words of wisdom and things that you tried out and it works. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much, Andrea. I think this was really amazing. And as I said, every time I speak with you, I learn something new. So it's good for me. I couldn't make notes right now because I was talking to you, but I am sure I'm going to spend some time tonight writing down. Some oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so thank much. you both. Brenda, you are a world-class interviewer. We need to get a podcast or a TTN television station or something. And have you on. Um, So thank you. And thank you, Andrea. And we have now a few minutes for you to ask questions. So I'm going to just give the the voice ability to to Jill Shire, and she's going to ask you some questions that are coming through on the chat. Thank you, Jill. Well, the first one that I see is uh, you said something about developing a spiritual practice. What would be some examples of that? What would constitute a spiritual practice? Well, it could be almost anything, right? I mean, we could talk about a meditation practice. We could talk about studying yoga. In the case of the example, um, this woman had Christian roots. She just decided to study Christian uh, Christianity as a spiritual discipline, it more the mystical part of Christianity. Um, somebody else was studying Kabbalah. Um, so there are many, you know, I mean, every Buddhism, you know, is another one that is, um, it's, it's all encompassing if you give yourself over to it. And I found that for my clients who were feeling lonely or alone, that developing a spiritual practice with or without a community, that every community is now online. So there's always that. And then if it's a safe and observant community, then as, as you can tolerate the risk, you can you know, um, go deeper with an actual community. 
Another question was, um, can you elaborate more? You mentioned a little bit about weighing the risk factor. Could you, could you elaborate on that a little bit more, please? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting focus. I mean, there's a lot psychological about evaluating risk, but there's something that's called sort of the similarity thing. Like if you know somebody who flew on a plane and they got COVID, you would feel less comfortable about going on a plane because they got COVID. Um, and yet statistically, that's not gonna really be a significant fact, but every single thing we do, we wind up, we wind up evaluating the risk. So do we wanna go to a movie theater? Are we ready to go to a party inside? Are we ready to go back to work inside? Um, are we ready to fly to another city that has a lot, like there's a huge COVID count in New York City now, and I have tickets to fly to New York on June 16th. I'm evaluating, like, is it gonna get really out of hand? I'll be mostly on Long Island and in the Hudson Valley. You know, so every single invitation that we have, we evaluate it, whether consciously or unconsciously, these days, much more in terms of risk. Well, actually the risk of getting hurt could be much more by walking out of your house or driving on a freeway. Building on that question, the question came in, many of us have health issues or other situations that still prevent us from getting back to normal. For us, we're still closer to quarantining than moving forward. Can you give us some tips about how to navigate this? Oh, it's so much the same. I have a step, I have a grandchild with cystic fibrosis. So the the quarantine didn't make any difference for him. He's been quarantined for 10 years. He's still, you know, he's a child. It's different than being an older person. There's, uh, you know, I think as older people, we're more resourceful. And the same, um, the same tips would apply to being disabled. A friend of mine just broke her kneecap. Now she's now she's quarantined for six weeks in a cast. With a chronic illness, it's, you know, it's definitely harder because everything could be a threat, especially to, you know, to breathing and those kinds of, that, those kinds of issues. So it's harder, but the same things apply. Everything we said that applies to quarantine applies to having chronic illness and being quarantined on your own. Mm -hmm. Is there such a thing as decision fatigue? when you're trying to decide and weigh the risk and all of this stuff going on and getting a balance, it sounds exhausting. Yes. So is there such a thing as decision fatigue? Yeah, well, I think that that's exactly related to what we're talking about. It seemed like everything needed to be evaluated. You know, where we just used to, you know, grab our purse and leave, um, many things have to be considered. You know, I mean, even things like, oh, did you forget your mask? Do you have your mask in the car? What, do you have your mask in your purse? Um, is this a safe person? Who was that person with last week? Oh, I think that person was somewhere, you know, I mean, certainly it can, it can be sort of part of that cognitive overload that Brenda and I were talking about before. But yes, and there's a thing of, there's another word that I think we've all heard also, compa compassion fatigue that this miserable situation that we feel bad about and that miserable situation that we feel bad about. And certainly for healthcare workers, you know, who care so much that it does get to be fatigued. And then after a while, it's like, you know, well, it doesn't matter anymore, <laughs> you know? So I can't decide anymore, I'm just doing it, I'll take the risk. 
So yes, there's such a thing. And, um, you know, some people appreciated not having to constantly be out and about. What was your, like your view on that is, is. I, I was one of those people because I was very out. And so it was a great relief for me. It was so peaceful. Um, a lot of the people who would describe, and I wouldn't have described myself as an introvert at that point, but, um, and, and that's a, you know, that's, that's too glib a word to use these days. But um, I think that that is what we learned. We learned that we didn't need as much stimulation as we thought we did. And as a matter of fact, being in relationship with our own self is, can be very satisfying. Another question just came in. How do you handle the problem of having people in your life who view the risk of COVID differently? Good question. And of course, we've all been dealing with that question. I, I think each one of us has to make our own decisions about it. I think what not to do is to try to change anybody else's mind. What we've learned the hard way is that we cannot change anybody else's mind. And so we have to hold our own counsel you know, we minimize that, or if we do see them, then, you know, we're meeting them outside. Um, some people you can be honest and straightforward with, others feel offended and they get on the defensive. So we really have to consider um, how, we're gonna, how we're gonna do that. Our own comfort and safety has to come first. We're the only ones that can take care of ourselves. There was another question about struggling to start over. You know, you might've belonged to a gym and the gym closed and other activities might be gone for now. And you have to like start from scratch. Right, right. Any suggestions for that? You know, I, so painting rocks became very big here in the desert. I don't know if it, it was big where you guys live, but people were painting rocks and leaving them on other people's lawns. But many years ago, I have an old rock that I made that said, begin again and begin again and begin again and begin again. And I've had the good fortune to have broken my leg on a number of occasions, sprained my ankle. And so I had to begin again many times. And, you know, I mean, it's just beginning again. <laughs> you know, that again, you know, we think we have to, pick up where we left off. We can't. It's just as important to just start small, baby steps again and again. And, you know, that's just the perspective that we hold that is, it doesn't help us to think we've got to compete with ourselves and be where we were. Mm -hmm. I think we have time for maybe just two more questions. And, and uh, one that came in is, um, can you speak a little bit about being bombarded by so much bad news? Yes, <laughs> I can speak about it. All I can say is, is what I do for myself um, is I put myself um, on a very uh, strict schedule of understand a balance, I would say, between knowing generally what's going on um, and at the same time, absolutely refusing to get immersed. And I recommend it. Many people are anxious about the, the greater issues in the world. And some of them we can do some things about and where there's action that we can take, take it. 
you know, we're, we're in a political season right now. And so many people are having parties for their candidates. They're putting their energy into something that they can control. But it's very important to realize what we can control and what we can't control. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves constantly because knowing about all of the disaster doesn't, it doesn't help anybody. Right. And then the, the, the last one is just um, people's reaction to the risk has caused me to rethink some of my relationships, which causes me to feel sad and causes me to feel bad for feeling that way. If you could just yeah. you know, suggest that about that, how to handle that and there, your there, last is, question. there is a general sense of grief about what we've lost, whether we've lost people through death or illness or not being able to be there, or we've lost them because the polarization has become so great that it made us feel uncomfortable. That, that is grief and that we need to mourn that loss. It, it's real. That loss is real. There are people that we thought we thought were close to who we're no longer close to for those reasons. So I think to normalize it, to understand that it's real, you can't hate yourself for it. You know, I think that in time, things, you know, some of the distinctions may mellow a little bit, I think on both sides, on all sides, but I think you need to grieve the loss of the people that you've loved that no longer are with you regardless of how. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andrea. That was quite wonderful. We're super thrilled to share this news with everyone that our newest book, Patience and Possibility, is now available in two formats as an ebook and in print, because everyone has been asking, when is it coming out in print? When is that coming? Well, it's available now right on our website at boomtalkmedia.com or on Amazon. And it's Patience and Possibility. Also, the other book, the, our very first, Relief from Worrying, is available as an ebook and very, very soon in print as well. We're so excited to be sharing both of those with you. And we'd love to hear from you. Write us at info at boomtalkmedia.com.